Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you on Friday, November the 21st. This week, a new five-part series about violence against women and girls, a very troubling topic that affects one in three women worldwide. In this extended podcast, we're going to hear from Tina Masuya, who is an activist and chief executive operating officer at an NGO in Kampala in Uganda, very much campaigning and implementing violence prevention programs in Uganda. But before that, let's hear from my colleague at the Lancet, Yudani Samrasekra. She has been talking to the two main authors behind this new five-part series. Hello, my name is Yudani Samrasekra, and I'm joined by the co-coordinators of the Lancet series on violence against women and girls, Dr. Claudia Garcia-Marino from the World Health Organization, and Professor Charlotte Watts from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Dr. Garcia-Marino, men and boys also suffer from violence. Why was it important for this series to focus on women and girls? Violence against men and boys is a very important public health problem. However, there are important differences in the forms of violence that men and boys are exposed to compared to women and girls. This tends to be most often gang-related and street violence in the hands of other men. It's uh, publicly recognized, it's visible. The forms of violence that women and girls experience is frequently hidden, socially sanctioned and not recognized or adequately addressed by the institutions that should respond to them. And this is why it's important to bring attention to, to it. Men and boys experience violence that is not stigmatized. No one blames men for the violence that they suffer for getting a one gunshot wound or ask them what they were wearing or why they wear what they wear. So we need to bring attention to the forms of violence that women experience and the differences while recognizing that violence against men and boys is also an important public health problem that needs attention. Professor Watts, as we learn from the papers, such violence can be prevented. Could you summarise what the evidence shows with regards to prevention? Thanks. Yes, you're right. I mean, what's important about this synthesis of evidence is it, it does show that it is possible to prevent violence. And actually, what a growing body of rigorous evidence is starting to suggest is actually that there can be large reductions in the levels of violence over relatively short, over two to three year time frames. And the kinds of intervention that seem promising include things like group-based participatory interventions that really help people rethink what it means to be a man, to be a woman, and to support them to develop new skills of interaction and resolving conflicts. The other types of interventions that, that seem to be promising are using a combination of economic and social empowerment interventions to empower women and support them to address violence in their lives. Um, and also what seems promising are community interventions community mobilization interventions that really help communities and, and marginalized groups to challenge violence that is happening um, against women in, in their communities. I think what comes out very clearly from the evidence based is it's not that we just work with women or we not work with men, but actually an effective joined up response needs to work with both women and men and with different leadership structures to achieve this prevention, but that it can, it can be done. The second series paper is dedicated to the health sector response. Dr. Garcia Marino, as the lead author of this paper, could you tell us about the crucial part this sector has to play in addressing violence against women and girls? Well, in many countries, the emphasis has been on the judicial or a criminal response, which is important, but it's limited. And the public health approach brings with it a more holistic framework that's looking at uh, root causes, it's looking at prevention, it's looking at response. And very specifically, the healthcare 
system has a role to play in early identification, providing support and care for women subjected to violence, and also very importantly to their children, which is important for prevention of subsequent violence, as well as for addressing the consequences and the impact of this violence. The initial response that women get from a provider when they disclose violence is very important in their pathway to healing, safety, decisions of how to address and uh, respond to their situation. And at the moment, this is very frequently a missed opportunity. So one of the things we, we emphasize is the importance of educating and building the skills of healthcare providers so that they know how to respond appropriately and effectively. And this means integrating these issues into medical and nursing curriculum, in providing on-the-job training and ongoing support and supervision and mentoring so that this becomes something that can be addressed by healthcare providers as part of their routine um, care. The role of the health sector is also important in terms of leadership and raising awareness of the problem and the importance of prevention. They have a role in data collection and using that data on the magnitude and the health consequences to raise awareness and work on prevention also. And finally, what other key outcomes are you hoping to achieve from the series? We really hope that the series will act as a spur for greater action to address violence against women. It's being launched just before the 16 days of action on violence against women, so we're hoping that this timing will mean it'll feed into subsequent actions and debates that are going to be happening around the world. And in particular, based on the evidence that we've reviewed, we've got five asks. The first is really for governments and leaders to, to take this issue seriously, to speak out on the unacceptability of violence, to allocate resources to prevent violence and respond to violence, and really show leadership in addressing this issue. The second is we're now at a situation globally where we do have, in many, many countries, progressive laws and policies, and the challenge is really to get money behind them and to have support to actually ensure that those laws and policies are enacted upon and become meaningful and actually help improve the lives of women and girls. The third area is, is the area of violence prevention. As I said, we are seeing that prevention can work and so we need to invest much more in how do we stop violence occurring in the first place as well as provide resources to support women who are experiencing violence. The fourth is, is strengthening the role of the health sector and as Claudia has just said, and this is an area that really needs more attention. We need the health sector to step up and be part of a multi-sectoral response. And lastly, the fifth area that we're hoping there'll be more attention to is, is investing in research and data collection. Even though we're starting to see, to learn about how to be effective in addressing violence, we still need to learn more, not only about the scale of violence, but also what are the effective interventions that can be scaled up. And also we need to ensure that we can monitor progress as programmes get implemented. Professor Charlotte Watts and Dr Claudia Garcia-Marino, many thanks. Thank you. And prevention of violence for women and girls is very much at the heart of the work of Tina Musuya, who is chief executive of an NGO called CEDAVIP, the Centre for Domestic Violence Prevention, based in Kampala in Uganda. Let's hear now from Tina, who is also the subject of a Lancet profile published alongside this five-part Lancet series. We have been... Working with CEDOVIT, this is going to be the 10th year. I joined as a, a program staff, but now I'm the executive director of CEDOVIT. So my everyday work entails quite a number of things, ranging from giving uh, the strategic direction to programming, to managing the staff and the funds, as well as fundraising, and also 
amidst all this, to remain an activist that is actively engaging the public as well. The work of the center started as a project of raising voices in, in the year 2000 to field test a program tool called Mobilizing Communities to Prevent Domestic Violence in a few parishes. So when it was very successful, the project became independent of raising voices. And at that time, it was called Domestic Violence Demonstration Project. Then in 2003, it was so successful, it became independent of raising voices and became Center for Domestic Violence Prevention. I joined some time later as a program staff, and in 2000, late 2005, I became the executive director, acting executive director. Then I switched roles and began to work directly with the police. I was um, in charge of training the police and the healthcare workers, and that meant that every day I had to sit at the police station and see how they are handling cases of violence. So my exposure to the police and then the community level, I learned quite a number of things that helped me get like this broader angle of what prevention looks like. Like for example, being every day in the community and seeing how men and women perceived themselves and how they treated each other and how there was like this whole tolerance of violence really got me so angry. I was like, no, I need to do something about this. We need to challenge them to start recognizing violence as an injustice. And then when I started to work with the police, I took note of quite a number of things. When women would go to report cases, sometimes the police officers would laugh at them, or sometimes they would, their intention is good, but the kind of questions they asked were wrong. More like asking them, why were you beaten? Of course, then she would say, I burnt the food or I came home late. And then they would end up blaming the woman for that. And then I saw quite a number of things that were happening by then. They would, if a woman reported a case of violence, they would ask her to go and call the man. How dare you give someone who has come to report the, the letter summoning that person who has committed a crime against her? Definitely you're causing so much harm. So I, I learned quite a lot of things ranging from capacity building of the police officers, helping them change attitudes, and also them gaining skills around how to handle such cases. And as if that's not important, I also recognize that for the police to function well, they needed that institutional change. Because like, for example, the police act that they were using by then was an old act, did not have issues of domestic violence. So they were not even trained on how to handle domestic violence. Then, even though there is a child and family protection unit, it was a little bit detached from the everyday running of the police station. The boss of the police station would say, oh, those are family matters. And he's not deeply involved in how to supervise, how to hold officers accountable, and ensuring that they have useful resources. So I was like, oh, we don't only have to build capacity, but also do advocacy around changing institutional practice. And then when I also started to engage into the, the, the public um, legislation spaces, we were the few people who had deepened understanding of what domestic violence is because generally everyone thought, ah, these are you know expected occurrences in relationships. 
And annoyingly, they call it misunderstandings. Domestic violence is not a misunderstanding. It's a serious thing. So when I started to engage in the spaces, that time the, the Uganda Law Reform Commission was drafting the Domestic Violence Act. Myself and a few other women rights activists participated in the drafting of the Domestic Violence Act and made sure domestic violence was covered, you know, broadly, away from physical violence only. And then also them recognizing that domestic violence happens because neighbors and everyone else tolerates it. It's not only an incident between couples. And then also um, making it clear that other people can also report violence. They shouldn't leave it to the responsibility of the survivor alone because often they are unable to report because of so many other things. And for them to know they are part of saying no to domestic violence. So all this exposure made me feel like if we have to do something around addressing violence, there's no one magic bullet. You cannot only address it at the community level because everyone else is contributing to its occurrence or non occurrence. And that's why when we are working, we as set of people want to, we try to work at all those, uh, uh, we use the ecological model to reach all levels uh-huh, and get them to do their specific role. And in terms of the law, the Domestic Violence Act, that came into power in 2010, didn't it? Your work, advocacy work, you and your colleagues helped, very much helped shape that legislation. So presumably that must have been a real landmark for you when that legislation became law. How is it being implemented? Because creating a law is one thing, but it's about policing the law and implementing the law in, in, in reality, in everyday life, that's, that makes the difference. How, four years after that law has come in, how are you measuring the effect of that law? That's a very good question because when a law comes into place, to me, implementation is this whole big thing. I really say when a law comes into place, that's the beginning of work. Because for a law to function, the law users themselves must know that the law exists and this is how it's protecting them. That's why for us, we believe very much that we have to do a lot of awareness raising for the public to know what this law is about and what is it that it addresses. How do they seek for help? And that's the reason we've translated it into eight local languages. I think it's the only law in Uganda that has been translated into eight local languages to help us in the awareness raising. Then we recently got into collaboration with the Uganda Police Force to do some campaign where they're using their cars with the stickers, Domestic Violence Act sticker, telling people if they're experiencing different things, they can come to report to police. So that's one angle. Then secondly... For the law to be enforced, because the law enforcers, just like the community, still believe that violence is normal, or it's a little thing that needs to be pushed aside. And that's the very reason we are closely working with the police to have these issues onto their curriculum, so that it, because it's a Uganda law, all police officers should know it and know what they are supposed to be doing and how to do it. And most importantly, change their attitudes. We also work with the Department of Direct of Public Prosecution because they're the ones who take the, the files to court after police has collected evidence. If they still think that violence is normal, they won't take it. So what we are doing is also training them to know issues of domestic violence, about the law, and then how to charge. Then we are also working with the healthcare workers, because 
if, for example, it's a case of physical assault, they should be able to fill in that form. Or if it's a case of sexual violence, they need to fill in that form and also learn how to testify in court. Most importantly, we are also doing a lot of advocacy with the legislators and the respective ministries to ensure that government allocates funding towards implementation of this law. So we do coordinate the Domestic Violence Act coalition that is doing a lot of lobbying and advocacy with government to ensure that the, the government itself allocates funding towards training of local uh, the police, training the, the local councils, training judicial officers, and also raising awareness. If we do that, then the government, in their plans, will have domestic violence implementation as an activity with an outcome. So they will require their different sectors to report against that. And that's why I'm saying it's like a whole process. It's within the initial stages, but I believe very much before I exit this space, we want to see some action happening. Many thanks indeed to Tina Masuya and to our earlier contributors. See you next time.